At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, as you turn there, let me remind you that this Thursday, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, this Thursday is a day of prayer for our nation. Could I just encourage you to put that on your calendar, be praying, be fasting for our nation. And that night we have a night of worship right here at 7 p.m. It's going to be amazing. We're going to come together and declare God's praise. So put that on your calendar, you guys. Also, um, as you know, a thank you to all those of you who took the boxes for our Thanksgiving boxes last week. They went so fast. You guys didn't leave any for the 12 o'clock people. Come on. No, but it's so good. Thank you. Now make sure you fill them. Uh, so wonderful that we get to do that. We also have another way that you can reach uh, out to our communities this coming holiday season, and that's through what we're calling house parties. It's really not a party. It's just your family inviting another family over to share a meal. It's as simple as that. If that is uh, overwhelming to you, we have a whole kit prepared for you. If you go to woodsidebible.org slash houseparties, there's all kinds of information there for you. You should have also that in your bulletins. But here's the thing. I want you to make sure you do this observing all the best health and safety precautions. We have to remain very vigilant about this. Thank you for how, uh, how compliant you guys are with the masks on the way in and out. It's very important that we take, continue to take this virus seriously. But again, as your conscience and your health allows you to, this will be a great way for us to be the light to a dark, dark world. So start thinking of what family members, what uh, neighbors, what coworkers you can be inviting. It's been a very isolating year for people. And if you're able to do this, it'll be a great outreach. As you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus was all about eating with others for the purpose of kingdom advancement. We can do the same. Okay, First Peter chapter 2, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we praise your name. We praise your name. We come to you this glorious day to see your glory, to taste your goodness, to embrace all that you are for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Father, I, I thank you for this congregation and their faithful in giving to our gospel mission. Father, prosper them. Father, help us be able to part with our money for the sake of greater things. Father, I pray that you would keep everyone healthy. I pray that you keep your people healthy. I pray that we'll continue to be uh, responsible citizens as we go about our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you've protected us. You've allowed us to do the services for the last three months uh, in such a healthy way, in such a safe way. Thank you, Lord. I pray that this morning you would give us your Holy Spirit and that we would be students of the word. Father, I pray you remove every distraction. I even pray, Father, that children and babies here crying will not be a distraction to us, Lord, that we would be able to rise above the din and just focus on your word. I know that you can make that possible for us. We love you. We trust you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter writes in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Learning a new skill is a wonderful thing. In many ways, we think that after high school or college is done, that our days as students are over. But nothing could be farther from the truth. For me, my days in college undergrad were the least academically stimulating days, as sad as that is. I had just become a Christian the year before my freshman year. And so the transformation taking place in me was so radical that just understanding my newly found Christian faith was all-consuming mentally and emotionally and relationally. I could not get excited about Plato's Republic when Christ's kingdom was liberating and challenging me in real time. But then ironically, I did become a student after college. I learned a lot about business and managing teams. And then many years later, I went to seminary and wow, like this whole new world was opened for me. So many things. One of them was studying the Greek language so that I could read the New Testament in Greek. And I was so fascinated by it all. I was so fascinated by language, so I got deeper into language, grammar and syntax and interpretive method and how language works and how stories work, the analysis of plot and setting and character and rhetorical purpose, and then applying all of those different tools to the reading and studying of Scripture. By the time I finished my doctorate, I realized I know so little. I've just been acquiring skills to become a good student, a good reader of text. Basically, I spent 11 years in higher education just to learn how to read. How slow? How slow is that? But you know, learning a new skill is a wonderful thing. It helps humanity. And I love that in our church family, we have so many students. So many of you are in medical school or dental school, or you're getting your master's in engineering or social work or teaching. But also, there are so many different subjects that people can learn online today, right? Graphic design and photography and videography and accounting and music and floral arrangements. Even there's tutorials on how you can scratch your boyfriend's beard. This is a thing. Now I think, hey, he's a big boy, he can do that on his own. But here's the thing, our text for today, our text for today is about learning an important skill. And I would say it's the most difficult an important skill that you could ever learn. There's a saying attributed to the ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. He said, he who conquers others is strong. He who conquers himself is mighty. The skill I'm talking about is soul mastery. Soul mastery, soul care. It's the battle within, it's winning the battle within, and it requires far more than discipline. This is not just about discipline. This is not just about having the physical discipline to wake up every day at five in the morning and work out. Nor is it about the mental discipline to study biology or case law for eight hours straight. Nor is it about the emotional discipline to respond to tough situations with composure. It's not about any of these. I mean, you could have all of those things, physical, mental, emotional discipline, and still have no idea how to achieve soul mastery. This is far more than about discipline. Discipline is too narrow a word. This requires a deeper understanding of life, 
of who we are, of what makes us human in the deepest sense. And I mean the deepest sense in the way that God created us. So let's dive right into our text and let scripture be our teacher today. First, win the battle within. Win the battle within. Look at verse 11. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. With this verse, the letter begins this whole new section that ends at chapter 4, verse 11. And this whole section of the letter, Peter is instructing us how to live in the midst of a world, the Roman world, back then for them, that did not recognize the God of the Bible. Not very different, in fact, from our culture today. Now, the section begins with the word beloved. That's the first word of this section, beloved. Someone who's beloved is greatly loved. Loved by whom? By God. Remember where we left it last week, that we are chosen by God, that we are loved by God, not because of anything in us, but simply because of who God is, period. We are his people. We've received his mercy. God has seen us in our desperate condition and he's come to our aid. And when God sees us in need, he doesn't say to us from afar, toughen up, you weakling. No, he says to us, I'm with you. I'm here with you to make you tough. And so Peter begins, beloved, as sojourners and exiles, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Remember that for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about the true home for Christians, this imperishable inheritance that is coming our way when the kingdom of Christ comes into full flourishing, a new heavens, a new earth. I mean, that's how radical our inheritance will be. But for now, followers of Jesus are a holy nation without a land. We talked about this last week. When people say that America is a Christian nation or that America was a Christian nation, that's not quite accurate. What is accurate is that America in its short history has always had a very strong Christian influence down to this day. When you compare it to, I talk to people from Canada and they're amazed at the gospel influence in our nation. So that is true. But this nation is not and cannot ever be a Christian nation. For the simple fact that Jesus is not in the business of making this or any other nation Christian. That's not what he's doing. That's the project of Christendom. And it had many, many problems with it. What Jesus is in the business of doing, do not miss this, is gathering his church globally. People from every tribe and people and language and nation, gathering them and making them, making us into a holy nation waiting for our land, which will be the entire earth. That is our inheritance. And so, when Peter calls us sojourners and exiles, that is his way of taking a people who are deeply entrenched in their culture and their land and reorienting us to another culture and another land. And so Peter says to us, beloved, as sojourners and exiles, I urge you to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now Peter locates the battle within. And he tells us that there are these passions of the flesh flesh, waging war against our soul. What is the soul? We got to start there. 
Because there's a small but growing percentage of our culture that says there is no soul. All that there is is your physical body, your natural processes. But the Bible talks a lot about this, so let's talk about it for a little bit. The word soul appears many times, many, many, many times in the Old and New Testaments. The word soul translated, the word that's translated soul in the English Bible uh, has a wide-ranging meaning. You know, Scripture talks about body and soul to make the distinction between material and spiritual. But it doesn't use it just in that way. The word soul sometimes means the whole person or a person's life. But the soul is the part of you that senses the divine. Animals don't sense the divine. They don't have a soul. It's the part of you that God alone can touch and forgive and heal and guide. That is the soul. Now let me tell you a few things that Peter says about the soul and a few things that Jesus says about it. Peter in this letter says that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our soul. And then just before he says that in chapter 2, he tells us that by the wounds of Jesus we are healed. Well, what is it that Jesus heals? He heals what medicine can't. He heals the soul. He heals the whole person. Peter also tells us that our souls are purified when we believe the gospel. So when you believe the gospel for the first time, there's a purification of your soul that begins to take place. He also tells us that we can entrust our souls and that we must entrust our souls to God. So those are some of the things that Peter tells us about the soul. Let me tell you a few things Jesus says. Jesus says that when we come to him, we find rest for our soul. Rest for our soul. So you could take the most extravagant vacation, your ideal vacation, and yet come back and your soul not be rested one bit. Or you could work under the most stressful conditions, but because you're so close to Jesus Christ, your soul be at rest the whole time. Because rest for the soul happens in him. A vacation may help your body, for sure, and your state of mind, and those things do affect the soul, to be sure. But rest for the soul itself comes only from Jesus Christ. Jesus also tells us that the soul can be lost. He says, what does it profit a man, this is in Mark chapter 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, lose his soul? Listen to what he's saying. So our professional accomplishments... Our great relationships, the approval that we have from others, our physical fitness and health, none of these things in themselves tell us anything about our soul because you could gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit your soul. And then there's this great verse in Matthew 10 where Jesus talks about the soul and he says this, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Now this is great news. This means that humans, human beings, do not have access to your soul. They cannot destroy your soul. Isn't that great news? A person could be in prison in the oppressive regime of Rome or North Korea today, and yet their soul be set free and secure in the love of God. Amazing. So here's the thing. People... Do not and cannot imprison or kill your soul. But there is something that wages war against your soul. And what is that? The passions of the flesh, Peter tells us. 
the passions of the flesh. Other translations say our sinful desires. So people out there, this is so important. You need to know this. People out there do not have access to your soul, but you do. Your flesh does. So what is the flesh? We're talking about the soul. What is the flesh? The flesh is the part of you that responds to sin and likes sin. That's your flesh. So for example, say your coworker gets that promotion that you really wanted and you begin to feel so much envy toward them. That's your flesh responding. Or say that your spouse starts talking to you about something that you're not particularly happy about. Any spouse here ever had that experience? Yeah, Megan, you're Slum Island. Yes. So, right, your, your, your spouse are speaking to you about this thing you're not particularly happy about. And internally, you begin to prepare siege works and grenades. That's your flesh responding. So the flesh is that part of us. It's our desires who, that have not come under the control and influence of the Spirit of God. So with that last example I gave you, notice what's happening, right? Your spouse comes to you with all these things and you're not liking it, so you begin to prepare all your artillery, right? You're getting ready for the fight and you think that you're fighting your spouse when in reality, you've just become a pawn, a hostage to your flesh and your flesh is waging war against your soul. Do you see what's happening? You think you're fighting your spouse when in reality, your flesh, which is within you, is ravaging your soul. This is so important. So how does all of this work? Well, first thing that we need to realize in this whole thing is that what's waging war against our souls is our desires. Now, not all of our desires are of the flesh. When you come to faith in Christ, the Spirit of God begins to purify your desires, right? That process begins. But uh, our desires can be then our friend or our foe, depending on who's controlling them, the flesh or the spirit of God. And depending on who wins that battle over your desires determines whether your soul will prosper or perish. So the new skill you need in the battle for your soul is to learn to wage war against your flesh. You need to learn to wage war against your flesh, but we need to see how weak we are in this regard. We are so weak. Let me just read you uh, a quote from Martin Luther from the 1500s. Okay, this is like over 500 years ago. Here's what he says. As soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, we become so weak that we think we cannot beat down the least imaginations and sparks of temptation. And we see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of the head, even to the foot. For before we believed, we walked according to our own lusts. But now the spirit has come and would purify us. And a conflict arises when the devil, the flesh, and the world oppose faith. If you then have wicked thoughts, you should not on this account despair. Only be on your guard that you be not taken prisoner by them. Okay, so what Luther is saying here sounds almost untrue and unbiblical. He says that as soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, we become so weak. But I thought that when we came to faith, we became so strong. Yes, we become strong in time. But what Luther is talking about here is the fact that we know nothing of the battle within. 
We know nothing of what it means to wage war against the desires of the flesh until we come to faith. Listen, until we come to faith, all you've known is the desires of the flesh. That's all we've known. Let me give you an example of this or an analogy. When a guy is single, he lives a certain way, right? There are pizza boxes everywhere. The kitchen sink is full of dishes. His clothes are scattered throughout the apartment. The furniture is mismatched, right? And this all seems very fine, very normal, very good to a single guy. There is nothing wrong with this. But then he gets married and his spouse moves in. And she begins to ask, hey, when are you going to do all these dishes? Hey, why are your clothes all over the place? Hey, we need a new couch, okay? Every guy, I mean, I'm telling, come on, guys, you give me, nod to me, right? Every guy that's gotten married has gone through this. I call it the husband detox program, okay? I mean, that happened to me when I was, you know, when we were getting married, Anna and I, uh, we were going to live in my apartment in Manhattan. And so the last month of our engagement, I moved out and she moved in and man, she transformed that thing. The floors were new, the walls were painting, all kinds of things of mine were gone, you know? I mean, this thing happens. This is why the adjustment, the first year of marriage can be so challenging for some couples. Now, I understand that in some cases, the man is tidier than the wife. I get you, the two of you out there for whom this is the case, right? But what I'm illustrating is that when all you've known is one way of doing things, someone else's, a new presence in the home can make things very difficult at first. And that's precisely what happens to our desires, our desires here in this analogy is the guy that was single, okay? Our desires, that's what happens to our, our desires the moment that we come to faith and the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence within us. You see, this is what Luther was talking about. Before faith, we simply gave in. That's all we did. That's all we knew. If we were tempted to lie, we lied. If we wanted to look lustfully at a woman, we just lusted. If we were tempted to vanity, we were consumed with ourselves. There was no struggle. There was no fight. But then we come to faith and the spirit of God, the presence of God moves into our hearts. And now the struggle begins. Now the real struggle begins. Now when your coworker is promoted... And everything in you, right? Envy begins to swell up. Oh, that's the promotion I wanted. The spirit of God now who dwells within you reminds you, love does not envy. And so now the battle begins because feeling genuinely happy for your coworker in that moment is a new skill that you do not have muscle memory for. Envy comes so much more naturally. Do you see how this works? So there's two things in this fight. Remember, this is what Peter is after with us. He says, wage war. I, I urge you to wage war against the passions of the flesh that are waging war against your soul. Actually, he says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. There are two things we need to realize. The first one is that the desires of the flesh wage war against our soul. These desires do not debate with our soul. They do not make suggestions. No, they come to us with the full force of an army. They are relentless. They are, the battle is raging. So that if you take a passive approach to your soul, 
to the care of your soul, to your soul mastery, you're going to lose. You're gonna find yourself weaker and weaker, more and more attracted to the things of the world than to the things of God, more and more conformed to the world than to the character of God because the passions of the flesh never stop. The switch is always on. They're always working. This is why John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. The conveyor belt of our sinful desires is never on strike. It's always working. It's a war. Are you aware of this? Are you aware that there is a war raging within you? That's the first thing. It's war. The second thing is, how do we fight then? How do we fight? And what Peter says to us here is we abstain. Do you see in verse 11, he urges us to abstain. We say no to our sinful desires and deploy everything that we've learned from Peter's letter and from everywhere in the, else in the Bible about our true identity in Christ. And we deploy those resources in the fight against our soul. Listen, abstaining though, is very difficult for our Western culture because we live in an indulgent culture. We live in a me culture, in a now culture. Everything is on demand. Sex, shopping, food, everything's on demand. If you want something, we want it now. And so we need to learn to slow down and become suspicious of our desires. That's something that I wish I heard more coming from our mouths as Christians, from our hearts and our thought processes. Slow down and become suspicious of your desires. Don't assume that because you want something, oh, I want a new car. Whoa, wait. Where's that coming from? Is that the spirit of God telling you? Or is that your flesh feeding some desire, some need that you have? So slow down and become suspicious of your desires. For a desire that you want, ask, ask yourself, who's the master of this desire? Is it the flesh? Is it my flesh or is it the spirit of God? Will this desire cultivate my deep, a deeper love for Jesus or is it going to hinder my love for him? Why do I want this? Become suspicious. Will it purify my soul? Am I placing my hope in this desire rather than in God? Here's the thing, you guys. The good news is that people out there don't have access to your soul. The challenge is that your desires do. And when they're not in obedience to Jesus Christ, they ravage your soul. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, our desires begin to be purified because our soul is purified that does not happen at once or completely. This happens gradually in time and scope. So win the battle within. And if you've never given your life to Christ, then all you've ever known is what we talked about earlier. All you've ever known is just your desires of the flesh. That's all you've known. You will go from temptation to temptation, from addiction to addiction, and never conquer. So I invite you to give your life to Christ, to come to him for rest for your soul so you can have the Spirit of God come within you and begin fighting this fight against your flesh. Win the battle within. Number two, win the battle outside. So now Peter directs our attention outward, okay? 
The battle starts within for sure, but then it moves. It doesn't just stay there. It moves out toward the world. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a way to win people over for Christ and it is not through verbal attacks. And the goal is neither um, renewal for our culture. It's not to transform the culture. The New Testament writers do not speak in the grandiose terms of renewal for Rome. They're actually after something much bigger. They're after renewal for the whole cosmos, but they know that that renewal in full and full flowering will only come at the return of Christ. And so the goal is here in this verse. It is that when God visits us, when he visits the earth on the last day, that people who previously did not know him We'll begin to praise him. That's the goal. And the way is through our good deeds. That's what he says. That we would keep our conduct honorable and good. That is the way. So that's the goal and the way. And I want, listen to me. I want the goal and the way that Peter speaks about here to be an encouragement to us. Because I see it in Christians' faces and I hear it from you. This fear. This despair. That our culture is becoming less and less godly, more and more secular, more antagonistic to the faith. It's as if our assumption were that the culture out there should agree with the Christian faith and affirm that marriage is between one man and one woman for life and affirm the sanctity of life, whether it be the life of the unborn or the life of the immigrant or the life of the minority, of the poor, of the aging. It's as if our assumption were that the culture out there should like the Bible and like the God of the Bible and like the people who listen to the Bible. But here's the thing. Scripture does not make these assumptions. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that the world out there hated Jesus and it will hate his followers. Scripture also tells us that the world out there is filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They would be gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Think of the things you see out there, you see on the news, you see at your workplace. Match them up against these lists. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is all in Romans chapter 1. And so rather than us getting consumed and distracted by all kinds of things going on out there that we can't control, that Scripture says are going to happen, Peter directs our attention to two things that cannot fail, the way and the goal. So let's talk about them. The way. The way to win people over for the cause of Christ is not by changing them or judging them or critiquing them, but rather by changing ourselves, by judging ourselves. That's why the battle begins within. Specifically, right here, he's talking about our conduct, that our conduct be honorable. Honorable. If I was going to say it in one sentence, I would say, your life is your witness. Your life is your witness. God's plan to gather his church globally is to insert followers of Jesus in the midst of people who don't know him. That is his plan. And because these followers of Jesus are winning the battle within, 
And I'm concerned because many Christians are not winning the battle within. But the plan of God is that as Christians win the battle within, they will stand out without fanfare, without big pronouncements or announcements, but simply by being truthful and speaking kindly of everyone and caring for the oppressed and being the most dependable and helpful professionals to have around and opening our lives and our homes to people so that they may have an opportunity to see our lives and that we may share the gospel with them. This is God's plan. And by the way, this is not something that you do on your own. This is something that we do in the fellowship of the church where Peter says here, keep your conduct honorable, your conduct, your, that's plural in the Greek. It doesn't come out easily in the English, right? But what Peter is saying is, you followers of Christ do this and do it together. That is the way. This is the way that God is winning this world over to himself. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of us knowing that people will speak evil against us, call us evildoers, and we will not retaliate. Some of your Facebook posts are an embarrassment to the faith. Don't unfriend me now. That's the way. Let's talk about the goal. The goal is not, please listen to this carefully, we're nine days from the election. The goal is not that through political or military or economic means we'll bring the kingdom of God to earth. That is not how Jesus does it. The goal is what Peter says here. That when people who do not know God see our good deeds, our honorable conduct, they will give glory to God. That is the way. You see, the church's job is to be the church. That's it. That's our job. The church's job is to be the church in all of the awesomeness of what that means. To let the light, the marvelous light that we talked about last week that God called us into shine, shine, shine brightly in us. Many will hate that light, but many others will be attracted to the light and come and give glory to God when he visits. There are so many. I mean, all of us, really, every Christian, that's the case. How do they come to the faith? They saw others who were Christians, who stood up for Christ, whose life was beautiful, and they could not deny the light in them. And then they came under the submission and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they will be praising God on the day when he visits us. But listen, we cannot be impatient about this. We can't be impatient. For the longest time, you know, when I first became a Christian, I was the only Christian in my family. Uh, as a matter of fact, my family was slightly hostile to the faith. Not excessively, but slightly hostile to it. But then after over a decade, three of them came to faith in rapid succession. And as they talked to me about it later on, they just shared how my faith and my life had had a, a big impact and had helped draw them to the Lord, okay? But that happened in retrospect, in the everyday battle of life. I wasn't hearing any of that. I wasn't seeing any of that. All I knew was that I was called to follow Jesus, to be faithful to him, even when I didn't see any fruit. So be patient. Follow Jesus. Your life is your witness. So, in light of everything that we've said, let me leave you with three words. First, a new skill. We've been talking about new skills. A new skill takes practice. 
What does it profit a man, a woman, to gain the whole world and lose their very soul? Your soul is under attack every day. But the attack does not come from outside. The attack does not come from other people because people do not have access to your soul to destroy it. The attack comes from within, from the desires in you that are not in subjection to the Spirit of God. And so fight! I find that so many people who are most physically and mentally disciplined can be incredibly lazy when it comes to the battle for their soul. They're disengaged. They're distracted. They're out of shape. They're not putting in the time to hone this skill, to win this battle. They're sporadic in their rhythms of worship, rarely in prayer, gluttons of pop culture, but starved of scripture. Fight or your soul will perish. Starve the flesh. We must starve the flesh. Go after your desires. Bring them under the sway of the Spirit of God. Fast. Fast this Thursday. It's a big deal, you guys. Starve the flesh or your soul will perish. Abstain, it's what Peter tells us. How do we fight? I find Christians who feel like, oh, I'm not making any progress in the faith. I'm stuck in the same place. I'm not seeing any growth. There's this thing that's winning over me. There's this temptation. Yeah, because you're not starving your flesh. You're not abstaining from the passions of your flesh. Abstain from social media. Did you know that so much of what lulls us into spiritual apathy these days comes through our phones? Did you know this? Can you put it down for a day? Listen, when you pick it up tomorrow, everything will be as was as it was. You will not miss a thing. Delete some apps. Really? What are you thinking about right now that you need to delete? You really don't need Candy Crush. Fast, fast from food, fast from coffee. Oh, now I'm getting close to home. I know some of you are like, Lord, I will go to Siberia for you, but please do not take away coffee from me. Listen, some of you are deceived. You think you're happy because you're so full of trust in the Lord. Listen, give up coffee. You'll become grumpy so fast you'll realize it wasn't trust. You were just full of coffee. We need to fast. Let me share with you the, the most effective fast. I've been fasting since I became a Christian. I learned about the practice slowly. I started doing different things, 24 hours, then longer. But the fast that's been most effective in my life is this. I give up breakfast for three or four weeks in a row. It's been amazing. It's been the most helpful to me. Maybe something else is for you. But it's amazing after one week, just what starts happening in my soul is amazing. I start humbling myself. I start feeling my weakness more and more. I become more attentive to God's voice and listening to him. I, I sense the spirit speaking to me and moving me in a way that when I'm full of food and I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm so hungry. I just want to put this in my mouth. That's not happening. That's not distracting me. So I'm more aware of the wrestlings of my flesh 
If you're trying to conquer something big in your life, maybe pornography, maybe vanity, maybe shopping, maybe anger, maybe obsession with a certain relationship, abstain, fast. Anyone can do the fast that I just mentioned. Anybody can do without breakfast. But as you do it longer and longer, oh man, what starts happening in you. Please do this. If you want to hear the voice of God, do it. We're distracting ourselves to death and we're losing our ability to commune with our creator, to pause, to sit in silence, to entertain serious reflection and allow God and his voice to uncover our idolatries. We don't even know them. We don't even see them. The flesh The flesh has conquered our desires and we don't know it. And so fast this Thursday as a means of getting closer to God, drawing nearer to God, and then come worship with us at 7 p.m. Listen, you will not abstain from the passions of your flesh if you're not indulging in communing with your maker. That's the first thing. A new skill takes practice, so abstain. The next one is this. A therapist can't heal your soul. A therapist can heal your soul. Now, let me say this first. I believe that there's a place for professional therapists and counselors. I refer, I have referred many people to them. I believe that a good therapist, a good counselor, especially a Christian one, can do a lot of good. I consider them allies to me in the spiritual work that I'm engaged in. But I also know that in our secular culture, there is no place for the soul. There is no soul. The belief is that we're just physical, natural beings with chemical and emotional and other mental processes going on. And so if we can change your thought pattern and dredge up the history that shaped your emotions and give you medicine to alter your chemistry, we can get you healthy. Now, again, there is a place for these things, but I do not want you to misplace your hope. There's only one person from the outside that has access to your soul to heal it, to forgive it, to guide it, to shepherd it, and that is the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who can give rest to your soul. He's the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You can entrust your soul to him and he will preserve it for all eternity. And so lastly, the wonderful counselor must save you from your sins. There is no soul mastery without the forgiveness of sins. We are guilty before God and accountable to God for the passions of our flesh that we've given ourselves to. And we've all done this. We're all guilty and accountable. Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather than, he says, fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. That is not Satan, that is God. We are all guilty before God. We're all accountable to him for the passions of our flesh, our sinful desires that we've given ourselves to. Do not make a mistake with this. But here's the thing, the flesh... The flesh is indomitable. You cannot conquer it. No matter how much you try, the flesh only, there's only one principle that the flesh submits to and one alone. 
the grace of God lavished on us through the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's it. That's the only truth and power that the flesh shrieks and shrinks before. It's only the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't just need our thought patterns to be altered. We need our sins to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be washed away. And so therefore, confess your sins to your Savior. Avail yourself of his grace and abstain. Fast. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, the flesh is so strong. We respond to it. We like it. Apart from, from the work of your Holy Spirit within us, we know nothing of waging war against the passions of our flesh. It's all we know. It's all we do. Day in and day out, 24-7, from the time that we are born. So, Father, I pray that we would understand that apart from your spirit, we are sunk. We do not know how to fight. And then, Father, I pray that we would understand that when we become Christians, we're still going to be weak to fight against the flesh. We must learn this new skill of deploying everything that we've learned about our true identity in you to fight against the passions of our flesh, our sinful desires. I pray, Lord, that any and everyone here who calls himself or herself a Christian will not be naive about how it is that we grow in godliness. I pray that we would be ready to fight. I pray we'd understand that the flesh comes at us with the full force of an army and it's always raging. And so I pray, God, that even beginning tomorrow, us, this people of yours, would abstain. That we would declare war against the flesh and starve it. I pray, Lord, that you would highlight for every single one of us right here, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, what one thing you're after that we've been hiding, that we've been giving ourselves to, that is not of your spirit. And I pray, God, that we would declare war against it, that we would trust you to give us deliverance and that we would begin to abstain and fight. Father, above all, we give you thanks that there is one principle before which the flesh dies and that is the grace of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a miracle worker who makes the way. We love him. We trust him. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.